chapter 14, 1 through 14. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again, and I will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Truly, truly I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. This is the word of God. Well, it's St. Patrick's Day. When you think of St. Patrick's Day, what comes to mind? I remember when I was a kid, what came to mind is I better wear something green, right? If I don't wear green, I'll get pinched. Why do they pinch? Does anybody know that? I don't, you know? Did, or is that just in Arizona? Did all of you get pinched too? Yeah, we all got pinched. And some people took it pretty seriously, you know. And you'd say, well, I'm wearing green underwear. Show me. No, I won't show you, right? <laughs> we'd get a green pen. You didn't do that, right? But I would do that, you know. Um, we'd get pinched. And I got pinched all day. I never could remember to wear green. And then as you get older, when you think of St. Patrick's Day, well, we generally think of it as what? A huge, Pardon? Yeah, a huge drinking party. You know, Irish pubs are packed, and, uh, and uh, you know, and so m most drinking establishments are packed, and I don't know whether it's earned or not, but the Irish, uh, you know, have a reputation for being heavy drinkers. I think because it rains so much in Ireland, they've got to be indoors all the time, and uh, uh, I don't know if it's a, a worthwhile, I don't know if it's an earned reputation or not, but more recently, though, St. Patrick's Day has been known for something else as well. Um, there's been some controversy surrounding St. Patrick's Day. Are you aware of that in the last few years? Numbers of years. Um, regarding various parades that go on, particularly in New York City. Now, do you know about this New York City parade, the St. Patrick's Day parade? It is the largest parade in the world. They sometimes have more than a quarter of a million parade walkers. 
people in the parade. It's had a 250-year history. I mean, that, it's older than the United States is, the St. Patrick's Day Parade. It has no floats, no motorized riders. It's a very traditional parade, bands and walkers. Have you ever seen it? I haven't. Yeah, you, some of you have maybe? Yeah, a huge parade. And in addition, it has a strict policy banning the participation of openly gay organizations. Have you heard that? Yeah. Well, that's caused a lot of uh, a lot of controversy sometimes. Why can't we, you know, as as a, various community groups are all allowed to be part? Why can't we be a part of it? Large controversy that's happening. Why? Because the parade is sponsored by the ancient order of Hibernians. That's an, you didn't know that, but the ancient order of Hibernians, which is the oldest and largest Irish Catholic organization in the United States. Started in 1860 or so, and it's the largest Irish Catholic organization in the United States, and indeed in, in one of the, in, in, in the in, perhaps in the whole world. And to join the Hibernians who sponsor this parade, to join that group, you must be Catholic and you must be Irish. You need to be you know, Catholic, both Catholic and Irish. It's, di it's distinctly uh, not a, an official arm of the Catholic Church, but it's promoted as a Catholic organization, which, as you know, have a strong theological position with regard to homosexuality. And so this organization uh, feels it necessary in good conscience, if they're promoting the values of the Catholic Church, how can they allow groups to promote a lifestyle which they find to be at odds with the teaching of the official Catholic Church? Now, given the state of our culture today, you can imagine the uproar over this decision. What right does anyone have, our culture would say, to make any statement about the personal life of anyone else? Have you ever heard that? What right does anybody have to make any statement about anybody else, even on their guise of religious teaching? Isn't this the epitome of religious intolerance? Now, you're all a little nervous while I'm starting this, aren't you? Well, let's talk about this whole question. Because we're taking at this text, look at this text, John 14, which has some very profound and controversial things to say about Jesus and about the Christian faith. It pulls no punches. It, uh, it says, first of all, that Jesus is the only way to God. Doesn't it say that? John 14, 6. I am the way, the truth. And the life, no one comes to the Father except through me. That's a controversial statement in our current pluralistic climate, isn't it? Aren't there many ways to God? What right do we have to say this is the way? What right did Jesus have to say it if he said it? What right did the early church have to say it if they put the words into his mouth? And even if they got there, they obviously got there. What right do we have to still believe that Jesus is the only way. You see the problem? Now, perhaps you're part of the already convinced. And this is like you know, asking a question for which you already know the answers. But trust me, this is a big deal around your neighborhood. This is why your friends and your neighbors, one of the reasons why they're not clamoring to Christianity. We need to be aware of that. And the second thing that it says is that Jesus himself is the representation of God on the earth. He said, don't you know if you've seen me, you've seen the Father? What does that mean? 
That means if you want to know what God is like, look at Jesus. And we've been learning that in this whole Gospel of John, that John wants us to know that Jesus is the Son of the living God, God embodied, God in the flesh, God incarnate, God walking among us, that God clothed himself in human skin, that Jesus is unique in all the earth. He is, in a word, none other than God himself. Well, how are we to understand these two ideas? I could just parse this text for you and, you know, tell you what it's saying and just say all the things that you see in it already. Or I can have you think about this text from the perspective of this larger cultural question. And so I'm going to take that approach this morning. I hope you're up to the task. We're going to be a little bit intellectual today. I'll try not to lose you. <laughs> no, I'm teasing. <laughs> because we need to think about this question. It's one thing to say the Bible said it, I believe it, that settles it. Well, it may be good enough for you, right? But what about our culture? What about these claims about Jesus in the midst of a culture which sort of has a different set of rules? How are we to understand texts like these in our enlightened days? Are they outdated? Is it religious bigotry? Is it out of touch with reality? We're going to talk about that today under two headings, and I've got, I, I gave you plenty of places to take notes, and now I'm going to try to go rather quickly and directly through this, and we'll do our best to solve this big cultural problem in 15 minutes. <laughs> Good luck to me, anyway. Um, uh, and two headings, the two headings, and they sound a little odd, but I, I figured this is the best way I could think to think about this. Number one, we want to look at the exclusivity of secular inclusivity. I'll explain this in a minute. And then number two, we want to look at the inclusivity of Christian exclusivity. Now, let's ta I'll talk about this a little bit. Our culture wants to be culturally inclusive. Everybody. But what I want you to see is that is itself an exclusive statement. Christianity makes some exclusive statements. What I want you to say, see, is that Christianity is more inclusive than the exclusiveness of the secular inclusiveness. Did that make any sense? Yeah, good. Well, hopefully by that time we're done, it will. You see, this, there is a so-called, there's an inclusivity of our culture. Everything's true. Everything's right. Everything's okay, right? If you examine those assumptions carefully, I want you to see that those assumptions are dangerously narrow and arrogant. And if you take a look at the exclusivity of Christian theology, our teaching about Jesus and who he is and what he did, if you examine it carefully, you'll see that it is much more inclusive than you first thought. And it is certainly more honest. Well, let's take a look at that. Let's take a look at the exclusivity of secular inclusivity. I won't say that much more because it's, it's as hard for me to say it as it is for you to hear it. What is it that secular inclusivity claims? What is it our culture basically claims? I want to have a dialogue today with an imaginary person who's trying to promote the alternative point of view. That person would basically say two things, and you can jot them. I think I gave number one, that, 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 that secular inclusivity claims that all religions are equally valid. Have you heard that? All religions are equally valid. There's various illustrations that are used of this. One is, one might say, all roads lead to God, right? Have you heard that? We're all on the same path, aren't we? We're all going the same way. 
It's arrogant to think you have the only road. Have you heard that? We're going to think about that in a moment. And another way that this is often thought of in our culture is this. You heard the story of the blind man and the elephant? Four blind men show up at an elephant. One goes and, see, and, and feels his trunk, and he makes a certain statement about what kind of an animal this is. Another person goes and feels his tail, and, oh, this is that kind of an animal. I won't get into the specifics of it. Another person feels its side. They all see a part of the truth of the elephant. They don't see it. They feel a part of the truth of the elephant, but no one sees the whole thing. And in the same way, we all see part of religious truth. We don't see it all. Everyone is right in their own way. We all have our own take on spiritual truth. All of them are equally valid. See, all religions, that's the first assumption, the first claim. The second claim, and we're going to take a look at both of these in a moment, is this. As a result, then, keep religion out of the public square. It's fine to privatize your religion. Your own personal beliefs are perfectly fine and appropriate. But when you come to the public square, the place of dialogue, the government place, the places of decision, culturally speaking, keep those religious beliefs out of the public square. Don't push your religious beliefs on other people in the public square. Have you heard that one? Well, sure. This is the, this is the water you're swimming in, fish. You don't think about it, but it's there. It's there. This is the water we are swimming in. So we would say, this point of view would say, if we're going to get along, we should keep our beliefs private. We shouldn't foist our beliefs on the general public. Now, what I want you to see about these two points of view, and I say this fully respectfully, truthfully, these views appear to be humble, but they're actually arrogant. These views appear to be practical, but they're actually impossible. Now, think about this with me. That's what secular inclusivity says or claims. But what is it that it does? I want you to see that it appears to be humble, but it is actually arrogant. This relates especially to that first argument that all religions are valid. Now, think about this. I know I know. I got to think through. I know you have to think in church today. If this is your first time here, trust me, we don't do this all the time. But this is just something that's got to be said. It's just got to be said. Okay? Um, the first argument is that all religions are equally valid. That sounds very humble. How dare you say? But I think it is much more arrogant than one might think. Our culture claims all road leads to God, or that religion is like an elephant to a blind man. No one sees the whole truth. Now, Leslie Newbigin, who was a writer a few years ago, responded to the elephant illustration in his book, The Gospel in a Pluralist Society. He said this, uh, he said, there, now if you think about the elephant analogy, there is a huge problem with that analogy. Here's the problem. The only way to know, um, the only way to know that no one sees the whole elephant is to assume that you see the whole elephant. You see that? It assumes an omniscience about the situation that it says is impossible. Do you understand that? It's a, it's a fatal flaw in the argument. The only way to know that no one sees the whole truth is to assume that you see the whole truth. You see? 
Here's what Newbigin says. He says, there is, an, there is an appearance of humility, but it may in fact be an arrogant claim to a kind of knowledge which is superior to all other knowledges. So I say this is the way I see reality. You say you're arrogant because that's the way you see it. You should adopt my point of view when I'm basically saying no one has the full truth on this. Did you see? I'm trying to convert you to my point of view while I'm telling you, don't try to convert anybody else to your point of view. Everybody's got a point of view. Everybody does. There's no such thing as a non-point of view. Even the point of view that all points of view are valid is itself a point of view. Do you get that? You have to think about this. Now, I'm not saying to become arrogant yourself. I'm saying be truthful about this. Tim Keller says... No one has a superior take on spiritual reality because that is a take on spiritual reality that you say is superior to everyone else's, you know? When we say no one should convert anybody to their religious views, you're trying to convert us to your non-religious view using that logic, you see? There is no way for you to know that all religions are equal unless you assume the kind of knowledge you say nobody has. I know I've said my point several times, but trust me, it's a lot harder to get in your head because we're so accustomed to this. No, it appears to be humble. All roads lead. But it assumes a knowledge that's beyond your knowledge, you inferior person who have a point of view, except my non-point of view point of view, you see? Very arrogant. Think about that. Secondly, it appears to be practical, but it is actually impossible. This relates to this second assertion, keep religion out of public life. Keep religion out of public life. To get at this, we need to ask a larger question. What is religious belief? What is religious belief? Is it just about going to church and practices and having certain habits? No. Religious belief fundamentally is the set of answers that we have to the big questions of life. Religious belief is our set of answers to the ultimate questions of life. Why am I here? What's life about? What is its purpose? What's wrong with the world? Where, if anywhere, is this going? The answers to those questions are fundamentally religious questions, even if you don't give them a religion. When you say why we're here, what life is about, what's the matter of the world, you are making a basically a religious statement, even if there's no religion attached to it. Your answer, you've got your own set of answers to the ultimate questions of life. Why does this, why does this matter? Well, um, you see, we can't live life without a set of answers to those questions, okay? So whenever we gather in groups, whether a small group of family, the larger group of a community, or the largest group as a nation, we bring those sets of beliefs into the discussion. You cannot divorce your beliefs from the larger public square. It simply cannot be done. I'll give you an example of how this is true. It may seem a little unrelated. We might ask the question in our culture, what is the purpose of marriage? And let's make laws that relate to marriage and divorce, okay? Well, this seems like something a, cult, a cult, culture has to do. How will 
we, how will we solve that question? Well, if you live in an individualistic Western society like ours, you will tend to believe that the purpose of marriage is to make me happy, that the needs of the individual are more important than the needs of the group. That's our culture, right? Uh, we will see marriages, uh, the purpose be the happiness and the fulfillment of the adults who enter, and we will want to make divorce easy for the sake of those adults, right? Because that's the way we... But if we are from a more traditional society, society of a few hundred years ago here in America and around the world today, we will believe that the family is more important than the individual. We will. That's culturally true in most traditional societies. We will see that the purpose of marriage is to create safe and secure spaces for the nurturing of children and the strengthening of family ties. That will be our belief. And how will, we revolt, how will we approach issues like marriage and divorce? We will want to make it hard for marriages to break up, for divorces to happen, for the sake of the children, for the sake of the culture, for the sake of the family. Do you see this challenge? You see, our deeply held beliefs necessarily influence our public policy. You see? So, yeah, um, there are, uh, when others say keep religion out of the public realm, what they really mean is this. My Western individualistic assumptions about human nature are superior to yours. Keep your religious views away. Adopt mine, you see? Michael Perry, a professor of law at Wake Forest, says, to say religious reasoning must be kept out of the public square because it is faith-based and controversial is itself a faith-based statement, which is incredibly controversial and therefore, on its own terms, ought to be thrown. I know that's a rather oblique statement, but it's just you realize when we're making public statements, everybody has a take on spirituality which is based on a set of assumptions. And everybody thinks their, their way is right. And that the world would be better if they adopted their opinions. When you adopt Christian point of view, you're not doing anything different than anybody else does. We all have a point of view. We think it's the best point of view. We'd like others to adopt that point of view, right? That's the nature of things. To say there should be no point of view is, it's impossible. We all have a point of view. The larger question is, what kinds of points of view best lead to loving, inclusive, healthy, positive relationships with people who share alternative points of view to ours? That's the question many Christians don't even ask themselves. Because we all have a point of view. So let's consider then next the inclusivity of Christian exclusivity. <laughs> I hope I haven't lost you on this because I think I'm saying something really valuable. What does Christian exclusivity came, claim? Two things. I already mentioned them in this text, and I'll be quick as I go through this because I just want to wrap this, tie this together. Christian, Christianity claims the uniqueness of Jesus' person. We claim the uniqueness of Jesus' person. Christians believe that Jesus is God with skin on, that God came in the flesh in Jesus. It's what we claim. It's what we believe. It's our point of view. We also believe in the uniqueness of Jesus' salvation. Verse 6 of this text, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. We believe 
in the uniqueness of the person of Jesus and the uniqueness of the salvation of Jesus, that Jesus is the only way to God. Now, how does this play itself out? What does this do as we relate to a culture with a variety of opinions, okay? Well, first of all, because we are saved by grace, we are humble before those who disagree with us. Christians, because we are saved by grace, we are humble towards those who disagree with us. This is the part where Christians often get it wrong. We think the problem with the culture is for us to be as mean and angry as everybody else. Just win. No. Because Jesus is the only way to God and that Jesus had to die for us to find Jesus. We are sinners saved by grace. We need to be humble to all the rest of the sinners out there who also need to be saved by grace. The problem with Christians is we don't understand the gospel. We think that somehow through our own goodness we got on this good side with God. That's not the gospel at all. Other, see, the thing is, other religions and groups believe this. Find the truth, perform the truth, and if you do it well enough, God will accept you. That's what's out there. Find the truth, even if it's your own truth, whatever the truth, perform the truth, do the truth, and if you do it well enough, God will accept you. That is not Christianity. Christianity, the gospel, is altogether different. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes by me. What does he mean? Notice, we don't have it in our text, but just before that, in John 13, Jesus says, I'm going somewhere you can't go yet. Peter says, I'm going to go with you. And then he says, I am the way. What's he talking about? Jesus is talking about his impending death. He's on the way. Where is he going? He's going to a cross. When he says, I am the way, no one comes but through me. He says, I'm traveling the path of death. Why is he going to the cross? He's going to the cross to give his life for rebellious human beings. Who's in that group? I am. You are. We are. We all are. How are we saved? Not by performing the truth, but by recognizing that we have miserably failed to perform it. And by realizing that Jesus himself died our death to give us his life. And as we place our trust in him, he gives us the life that he lived. He takes on himself the death we should have died. For God has made him who knew no sin to become sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. 2 Corinthians 5.21. You see, God comes and suffers for people who aren't good. Jesus isn't primarily a teacher who tells us how to live and that by living that way, we'll get on God's good side. Jesus is not just a teacher. He is a Savior who lives our life, dies our death. So evil people can be saved by His grace. We get saved only by admitting our failure and our need for God and our need for grace. And when you realize that, it humbles you before those who have not responded to Jesus. Do you see that? It humbles you. Humbles you. You see, humility should characterize those who follow Jesus, not superiority. 
because we recognize we need grace. We all need grace. We all respond to grace. Grace is available to all of us. And the second thing is this. Because Jesus is God, we are loving toward those who disagree with us. You see, there's an irony in this, irony in this. Because we could look at our faith and that could lead us to superiority. My founder is God in the flesh. Who's your founder? Is he God in the flesh? My founder is better than your founder, right? Superiority. You'd think that that would then lead to sort of religious intolerance and I'm better than you and all that sort of thing. But when we look at Jesus, what was he like? He loved those who rejected him. He laid down his life for his enemies. And as he did it, he said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. The irony is this. If you look at the early church, you will see that its exclusive belief in Jesus as God led to an astoundingly inclusive community, rich and poor together, black and white together, Jews and Gentiles together, the most exclusive community the world had ever seen, excuse me, the most inclusive community the world had ever seen that grew out of this exclusive belief in Jesus, God in the flesh. Why? Because that's what Jesus was like. They had to act like him, including everybody. They took care of the poor of all races. They took in the abandoned babies. They served the sick even at the cost of their lives. They loved their enemies. They prayed for those who despitefully used them. They did the Jesus stuff. So if we want to follow Jesus, who is God in the flesh, we too love those who disagree with us. Theirs was a community which turned the world upside down, and it came directly as the result of their exclusive belief in Jesus as God made flesh, in Jesus as God given as a sacrifice for the sins of the world, in Jesus as God through whom we can reach the Heavenly Father. So, what am I, which is the way? Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through Him. You know, it's sad that St. Patrick's Day has become a point of political controversy or an excuse to get drunk. Because St. Patrick's is a, is a hero of mine. St. Patrick was born in the 4th century A.D. He was born in Great Britain before Great Britain really existed. He was kind of a Romanized person. And when he was 16 years old, he was captured by Irish marauders, pirates, who came in and stole him from his wealthy family and brought him up where he nearly died as a slave in Ireland. He was not Irish. He was Welsh or English or one of those other things. And he was there for six years leading a miserable life. And the only thing that helped him was he began to remember this faith that he had not paid much attention to during the course of his life, this faith in Jesus that his parents had taught to him. And so during the course of that six-year period, his faith was reinvigorated, and he began to follow Jesus. And ultimately, when he was, I think, about 22 years old, he received a vision from God. Now, keep in mind, this is 350 A.D., so this is a long time ago. There's legend attached to all this, but this is the story and the best. He receives some kind of vision of God that says, go, you can go free, and he escapes. And he walks 200 miles 
which is the only way to go 200 miles in those days, right? And he gets free and gets on a ship and ends up back at home safe. But while he was there, God spoke to him back in England. Patrick, you need to take the gospel to Ireland. And so he began a 15-year period of study on Europe, at Europe, to become a priest so that he could go to that barbaric land where civilization had not yet come. And during the course of his next decades of life, he brought the gospel to Ireland and was adopted by those people. And I'd love to take more time. The fact that that happened did not just bless Ireland, but there is a very real possibility that we would have almost no ancient classical documents were it not for the fact that monasteries established by St. Patrick in Ireland during the course of those years were the only places where the barbarians had not burned all the documents of old scriptures so that when they came out of the dark ages, the people who had written down the word of God, the people who had written down Plato and all these things were Irish people. We owe a great debt to the Irish civilization and to St. Patrick, who was a guy who believed that Jesus was the way, who Jesus was God in the flesh, and who was willing to lay down his life in love for people who had been his captors before. Now go celebrate St. Patrick's Day that way. Take your faith seriously. Love people who disagree with you. Be humble before them. Lay down your life for them, and you may die. But Jesus' gospel will move forward. And people will say, my, how those Christians judge? No. My, how those Christians love. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for Jesus. I know we've had a lot of big ideas today, and part of me feels like, well, this is like going to a classroom. But these things need to be thought about. We need to think more deeply about our faith because it is relevant. Help us to take that exclusive message of Jesus and to include as many as possible in it, humbly and with love. In his name we pray. Thank you.